In this episode of MO Forum, we're joined by Matto Mildenberger, who is a political scientist and uh, is doing his PhD on the politics, really, of climate change in different countries. So we're going to do something slightly different here because uh, Matto wants to interview me and I want to interview Matto. We just tossed a coin and uh, Matto won. So he's going to start. This is for his PhD and then we'll flick the switch halfway through MO Forum and I'll start asking Matto about his findings so far uh, in terms of inter-country comparisons about political attitudes to climate change. So thanks very much, Matto. Well, thanks. My pleasure. And uh, I'm on the receiving end. Terrific. Well, uh, so as I mentioned, my uh, dissertation broadly looks at the comparative political economy of climate change and the politics of carbon pricing. Um, But I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, early efforts uh, in the Labour Party to negotiate um, policies on, on climate change? It, yeah, it goes back a long time and, and uh, it's encapsulated, Matt, I did give me advance warning about this, encapsulated in this document, Our Country, Our Future, which is uh, an environment statement that was released way back in 1989. I know a bit about it because I was Bob Hawke's environmental advisor at the time and uh, there is a section on the greenhouse effect it even goes um, into explaining what the greenhouse effect is and the uh, results of early research <clears throat> concerning the greenhouse effect. Interestingly, at that time, much of the discussion was about the ozone layer, the depletion yeah. of the ozone layer and the Montreal Protocol, which the government, Australian government had signed. Mm-hmm. And the question was, um, what do we do about this emerging greenhouse effect? It was quite controversial within the government because uh, Australia is a very energy-intensive economy and economic ministers were anxious that if the Australian government overcommitted through this document, it could find itself um, going out on its own and um, embracing policies to reduce emissions that would simply lead to industries being relocated Uh, into other countries that didn't have such measures in place and uh, leaving global emissions unchanged. Uh, You're very familiar with these arguments. They were um, very much to the fore in the discussion at that time. Finally, I remember a really tough negotiation involving the economic ministers, the prime minister and the environment minister, Graham Richardson, uh, where we worked on two paragraphs that are contained in here. And it says, yes, we will um, seek to limit emissions, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't adversely affect Australia's international competitiveness. Interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about those negotiations? And sort of well, there are really more discussions okay. to start with, right. to, uh, uh, because this document was uh, quite a long time in the making. It was conceived... Uh, by me in early 1989 and was released in July 1989. Obviously, it covers a lot more than the so-called greenhouse effect, but uh, it was when it was actually getting into the Cabinet or Cabinet Committee discussions where economic ministers were saying, hold on, um, we, we do not want to do something that will damage our competitiveness for no net improvement in emissions. 
and there was disagreement, therefore, on what we could say about that, and I needed to broker um, the words such that everyone in the uh, government, everyone in the Cabinet could sit comfortably with those words. Interesting. And, and tell me a little bit about the other parties or the other players in the political system. Were they at all engaged in, that, in this effort Not at the time? Not really. So um, by then we're looking at a peacock uh, coalition mm-hmm. and um, I don't think there was much discussion about it all. It was pretty new. There was an international panel on climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, there were concerns. The environmental groups, uh, most particularly the Australian Conservation Foundation, mm-hmm. were uh, exercised about this. Mm-hmm. Um, others too, the Wilderness Society, uh, a, a very tall um, man from the ACF uh, who was then and uh, has continued to be a very dear friend of mine, Peter Garrett, mm-hmm. uh, was pushing hard on this and by the, by the way, uh, around the same time on um, preventing mining from going ahead in Antarctica. So mm-hmm. these were two really big issues of the time. But it really was driven out of um, the conservation movement. Interesting. And There was no Green Party in Australia at that time either. So you didn't have a Green Party uh, saying we weren't doing enough. It was really the environment movement and the government. Did the Democratic Party take at all a position? Or? Uh, again, not that, um, that, that I recall that was a strong position. Um, but interestingly, too, in those days, the I think it's fair to say that the conservation movement wanted Labor to win. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't so adversarial that it was a matter of just hammering the Labor government and uh, mm-hmm. declaring at the end of the process that it just hadn't done enough mm-hmm. um, and could see no difference between the two political parties. That sort of behaviour wasn't being exhibited by these um, environment groups at the time. Interesting. Um, can you tell me maybe a little bit about how, uh, what emerged from the document, how the document pushed forward uh, policymaking well, in the Australian Well, actually, government? one of the most tangible outcomes from the document was uh, the establishment of a national greenhouse office um, mm-hmm. because there was still a lot of research to be done. There, right. uh, you know, it is... Uh, contended by a majority of people these days that the science is pretty well settled. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't have said that back then. I think right. the IPCC might have released a report. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, And certainly there was very little work at that time on any impacts on Australia right. uh, and the modelling that needed to be done. A bit of an amusing story um, we went into the 1990 election mm-hmm. with a very strong platform of fiscal rectitude. And so it had been determined that every time a policy was announced, mm-hmm. um, that the finance minister, Peter Walsh, would sign off on it, authorise it yeah. officially, and then, but this was within a total pre announced fund, funding envelope, which okay. itself was very modest. Uh, one policy uh, that had nothing to do with the environment did not make it through in the end, that is a policy that had been determined before the election campaign started, uh, was ditched during the campaign. You don't need to know the reasons why. But it meant that there was $20 million left over mm-hmm. and the government was so committed to getting to the exact bottom line that it, that it uh, had foreshadowed at the beginning of the campaign that I was given the job 
to decide what to do with this spare twenty million dollars. That's how the National Greenhouse Office was established. Interesting. <laughs> so anyone working in the National Greenhouse Office or from the mid nineteen nineties onwards, um, that's how it happened. That's how you got your twenty million dollars. So tell me a little bit about the National Greenhouse Office then. What was its mandate and what vision do you have for it at the time? Well, it, it, you know, to be perfectly candid, um, not a lot because um, this the uh, reason is that this document um, covered, uh, looking at it now, uh, I'll just give you some examples, natural ecosystems, Antarctica, um, ozone, land, soils, water, trees, uh, humans and the environment and the greenhouse effect. So mm-hmm. it wasn't the centrepiece of the document, but the document would have been incomplete if it hadn't addressed the greenhouse effect. Interesting. So the answer that I'm giving you is that we didn't put an enormous amount of thought into uh, in this document as to what this uh, greenhouse office might look like mm-hmm. and what its um, uh, mandate might be. Interesting. Well, look, around the same time, um, as you probably know, in the late 80s and early 90s, a number of countries around the world, uh, Finland, Norway, Sweden, were introducing very modest carbon taxes or undertaking some type of tax reform, often with a decrease on taxes on labor and shifting that into to taxes on emissions-intensive uh, processes. And so yeah. was that type of policy ever considered in Australia or was no, very off, much off the agenda? No, quite, quite uh, to the contrary. Um, because Australia was and still is a, an emissions-intensive economy, mm-hmm. the concern uh, wasn't to work out ways to get industry to reduce its um, emissions. As you know, it, it was actually there's even discussion about attracting right. some of these of industries to Australia. Why? Because the argument is Australia had higher emission environmental standards Mm -hmm. and therefore globally Australia might actually be able to play a role in attracting some of the mineral processing and other emissions intensive activities to this country. So at that time it wasn't about uh, working out how to get rid of some but how to attract some. Interesting. So tell me, you you had this election in 1990 which was a very environmental themed election for its time. How did the the coalition react? What was the the politics of it during that election? Well, again, the greenhouse effect um, was not okay. uh, a significant feature at all, okay. at all in that election. The environment definitely was. Okay. What had happened is that um, the Labor government had lost a lot of its sheen, and people were um, disinclined to vote Labor, but they hadn't moved over to the Liberal. National Party paddock, right. and so we described them as being in a holding paddock okay. between the Liberals and Labor. Mm-hmm. And so the question uh, initially was, how do we get them to come back into the Labor paddock? And mm-hmm. the testing and testing of um, internal polling suggested they simply were not going to do that. Okay. They were not going to come back and give their number one vote to Labor. Mm-hmm. However, what they could do is give their number one vote to another party, not the Liberal and National parties, mm-hmm. and give their number two vote to Labor, their preference to Labor. Mm-hmm. And that, that strategy worked. Uh, so the Labor vote in the 1990 election dropped below 40% mm-hmm. to 39 um, but we won that election easily. Uh, because people who 
went into the holding paddock, voted overwhelmingly Democrat, right. and then gave the second preference to Labor ahead of the coalition. Interesting. Mm. Um, and so then, after the election, was the discussion that the Liberal Party might adopt a similar strategy to, to try and replicate no, Labor success? Um, now, uh, I was on the way out of Hawke's right. office at this stage. I left in November 1990, mm -hmm. and... Um, there wasn't a competition okay. between Labor and the coalition for, let's call it, the conservation vote or the environment vote. There mm -hmm. wasn't. In fact, I remember the coalition um, were more inclined to say that um, states should determine, make environmental decisions and be responsible for the environment, right. uh, which suited us quite well because we didn't have that view. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd have already been putting um, large... Uh, area, areas of environmentally valuable land on the World Heritage List. Right. You don't do that if you give the states the right. job. You know That's the role of a national government. Mm -hmm. And the Hawke government, again, uh, I was heavily involved in doing this, intervened in Tasmanian forests mm -hmm. and um, stopped logging in the Lemontine forests uh, in Tasmania that had begun on Boxing Day in um, way back in 1987. That's right, yeah. um, and uh, we actually introduced legislation to stop that. Mm -hmm. So there was quite a contrast between Labor, which said, well, on big issues such as the Gordon Below Franklin Dam, right. um, on Kakadu, uh, sorry, Kakadu wasn't vexed, and wet tropics of North Queensland right. was a vexed issue, and so, was, um, and so were the Tasmanian forests. We said... This is a role for the federal government, the Australian government, mm -hmm. and um, the coalition's attitude was, no, it's got nothing more along the lines. It doesn't have anything to do with the Commonwealth government. It should be up to the Queensland government, the Tasmanian government, to decide what, to happen, what happens to these forests. Interesting. Mm. Well, let me ask you, I know that you left the Hawks government at that time in, in 1990, but what's your perspective on, uh, I guess, the how the issue was contested within the Labor Party over the next five or six years as the uh, well, transition what, to the Keating yeah, government happened? Um, there was discussion about the so-called greenhouse effect, but um, I think the much higher profile issue continued to be about forests. Right. And there were disputes within the mm -hmm. Labor cabinet about um, the extent to which uh, the Commonwealth should get involved in some other forestry decisions, including in southeast New South Wales. So that publicly that tended to dominate. Mm -hmm. um, what we did uh, before I left Hawke's office was set up this process called Econop Ecologically Sustainable Development. Mm -hmm. And we identified various groups where we wanted to use the philosophy of the Price and Prices and Incomes Accord right. of years earlier to bring the parties together business, trade unions, mm -hmm. environment movement, and see if we could work through some of these issues to avoid a conflict-ridden approach, mm -hmm. which had defined the forests right. in particular. Um, that was very process-driven because you're trying... But half of the exercise was actually getting people to sit across the table right. from each other. Uh, and that, that happened when Paul became Prime Minister, he didn't like it. He just thought it was a talk fest. Mm -hmm. But it did get finished off. Uh, I think it's sad that it didn't, um, through subsequent years and certainly upon the election of the coalition government in 1996, uh, maintain any momentum. So we went back into 
the forest wars and um, you know conflicts over the environment. Do you think there? Are, I know some people have talked about some of the the early actions that Australia took on in climate policy in this period in the late eighties and early nineties that have been forgotten a little bit in some of the recent debates. Oh yeah, people wouldn't know. Yeah. I mean, what, I, what do you think are the most important? So I mean, we've talked about the greenhouse office. Um, I know the the ecologically sustainable development process yeah. has gotten attention. Do you think there are, are are there other policies or processes you'd point to as being important to to keep in mind when thinking about this era? Um, well, I think the two principles that we um, pushed very hard mm -hmm. as the basis of decision making were intergenerational equity. Right. Um, we wanted this to pervade government policy making, and that is. Um, we shouldn't uh, make decisions now mm -hmm. um, to the benefit of this generation that create an environmental debt right. um, for future generations. And this shouldn't all be um, human-centric or anthropocentric either mm -hmm. um, for the planet. We shouldn't be utilising um, you know, the bounty of the planet in a way that badly depletes it for the future. Right. We know that mining by nature does that. It is mm -hmm. a non-renewable resource, but it's still nevertheless an important principle. The other one which was even more directly relevant uh, to this mm -hmm. is um, the precautionary principle, right. because there was a lot of uncertainty about this um, science of climate change, a lot of it. And um, those on the progressive side of politics were saying, well, but we can't just wait until the day when the last scientist comes on board and says, yes, there's a problem here, before acting. And mm -hmm. so under the precautionary principle, um, you give the earth the benefit of the doubt, um, something that Rupert Murdoch once said. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. for so many years after that, it just didn't happen. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the precautionary principle. So I'm curious, I'm sure that during the ecologically sustainable development process and you know, moving it from your perspective into maybe the later part of the 90s, um, there was resistance to sort of very aggressive regulatory approach or carbon pricing approach to yeah. thinking about climate policy. And I'm wondering um, what the opposition was like at the time. Was it a, a sense that we shouldn't act before the rest of the world? Was it a, already an active skepticism that climate change was a serious no, it problem? No, it wasn't. It's a good question. It wasn't um, so much scepticism but acting absolutely on our own, which mm -hmm. given the information at the day, you're telling me that Finland and other countries were actually acting, mm -hmm. but the sense was that really no one was yeah. and that all that Australia would achieve would be to export the industries, the jobs and the emissions right. for no net reduction. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't any sense that there was um, an imminent collective action on climate change. In the absence of that, mm -hmm. there was therefore in this emissions-intensive, energy-intensive economy, no appetite for simply yeah. exporting um, jobs, industries and emissions. And, and on the the forces that were pushing for early climate action, were there were there any people who who felt that Australia should be an early actor, maybe even no. if, even in the environmental community? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> not in the government though. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. And, and did they have particular policies in mind, or they were more pushing the notion of action without having a specific Look, policies? I can't, I can't really remember, okay. but um, uh, if they did, that would have um, 
they wouldn't have got very, gotten very far because of this overwhelming sense that there wasn't much happening yeah. globally. So when, when did that change? Oh, probably not until, um, you know, there was talk of a, you know, a, a global agreement, okay. um, serious talk of a global agreement. And uh, as we know, that did become more and more serious. Uh, by the way, as you know, um, the coalition government led by John Howard in mm -hmm. the last couple of years uh, finally right. um, accepted that there was something going on out there Disappointingly, since um, in the last year or so, John Howard, although he was saying he was very concerned about climate change and actually was arguing for Australia to be out in front, mm -hmm. uh, to be a leader in the region, mm -hmm. has conceded or confessed that it was a political response. Mm -hmm. um, and he described it as a perfect storm of a drought, right. um, rising international awareness about... Um, you know, the, the, the damage that um, uh, carbon emissions were doing to the environment. And uh, he saw all this, this convergence and decided to commission mm -hmm. uh, the preparation of an emissions trading scheme. Mm -hmm. And that document was prepared, as you know. Right. And, and when do you think the Australian public um, really began to become engaged in this issue? At that time. At that time. And the other... Um, influence on this perfect storm really was a 10-year drought. You know? right. Now, Australians were saying, this is weird, like this weather is really weird. Right. And you've got a lot of scientists and other advocates mm -hmm. saying, well, something's happening here, which is um, started with the Industrial Revolution, so it's relatively recent, right. you know, in the great chronology of our planet, and it's getting very bad very quickly, and the public feel that they can see the manifestation of that in the drought. Right. Now, there weren't that many people who were saying this drought is a result right. of But in people's mind, it was really dry and water was being trucked into um, cities such as Goulburn. This right. is pretty unusual, you know, mm -hmm. near um, near Canberra. Right. So that, that um, was the perfect storm that John Howard was talking about, and that's when people were really saying, we've got to do something about this. So, so in some ways you'd say that it's fair to say that the government was following yeah, know, was. the public and advocate. Well, well it's now clear that they John Howard has conceded that, yeah. What was your sense of the discussions within the Labor Party about the issue around that time? Oh, uh, well... Um, yeah, the Labor went to the eighty, uh, the two thousand and seven election with a very clear policy on climate change, mm -hmm. and so Labor was well and truly into it and making clear that it would implement policies to reduce emissions in this country. Mm -hmm. So by that time, um, yeah, there was a very clear understanding that we would act. And and do you think the motivation was differentiating? Uh, the party politically, or was it a no, real sense I, that it was an issue to act you on? You just or? got a lot of members of the Labor Party more broadly, of the mm -hmm. Parliamentary Labor Party, who are genuinely concerned about this. Mm -hmm. Yes, if you want to add in um, public opinion polling, um, Labor would have seen, like any other political party, that uh, the community was calling for action. Calling for action. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't know what, you know, okay. but... We ought to do something. That was the community's attitude. Mm -hmm.
And so how did that attitude, I guess, change over time as the next couple of years unfolded? Well, as you know, Kevin Rudd uh, committed to doing, uh, implementing an emissions trading scheme. Um, You could perhaps suggest that both Kevin Rudd and um, Malcolm Turnbull lost their leadership over this issue. Uh, you know, that's a bit of a bit of an exaggeration, but it were, they were both um, it influenced both both of their political fortunes. And Kevin had described um, uh, climate change as the great moral issue of our time, but in the end, blinked. Right. Now, this have this blinking occurred after the Copenhagen conference, for which I think incorrectly high hopes were held, mm-hmm. uh, and it looked to me. This is just personal view, like a bit of a circus over there. You know, there are all these uh, fringe events and so on. In my mind, if you're um, negotiating an agreement, say, to reduce um, nuclear warheads or, um, you know, a peace, a peace deal or some other big United Nations agreement, in my mind, it's people sitting with name tags yeah, and it all looks very formal and they're speaking in the microphone and and on behalf of their countries well the footage coming out of Copenhagen looked like more of a, like a big carnival yeah and I, I think that was really destructive that's just a yeah, yeah, interesting uh, it just didn't look like a serious negotiation uh, it was in fact a serious negotiation and some countries said they weren't ready to sign up mm-hmm. um, and by the way it started raining and the next year, I think Copenhagen was late 2009, okay. and by 2010, the drought was breaking in Australia. Okay. So the sorts of things that gone into the perfect storm were going backwards. And with that rain and with the um, breakdown in Copenhagen, community support for proceeding with um, an emissions trading scheme began to wane. Right. So was it uh, widely supported among stakeholders and, and sort of politicians to sort of abandon the CPRS mm. at the time? or No. Um, stakeholders, and most particularly the environment movement, were, you know, were horrified at that um, prospect. Um, I, I suspect business were starting to say, you know, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, the community... Still wanted action, by the way. Right. But they didn't want something that was going to increase their cost of living. Um, and so the political um, momentum for it began to ebb away. Mm-hmm. And then Kevin made the decision not to proceed with it after that fatal decision of the Greens right. uh, not to back the emissions trading scheme. Mm-hmm. And we actually had to negotiate or did negotiate right. with the coalition on it. And that's where um, Malcolm Turnbull came unstuck and Tony Abbott became leader. But on the other hand, like Malcolm Turnbull, he, he lost his leadership before Copenhagen, you know, the, the extent of Copenhagen, yeah. the Copenhagen failure was clear. And yeah. I, I guess, as you're telling me right now, before the drought fully lifted. So wh- why do you think that issue uh, polarized the Liberal Party so much at this moment? Uh, probably always did. Um, it's just that um, Malcolm became leader during the course of that first um, uh, Labor government, the right Labor government, um, having uh, defeated uh, Brendan Nelson. Um, And I don't 
know that there was another contender in the field at that stage. Mm-hmm. So it was Malcolm or Brendan. And Brendan's position was that we shouldn't act alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had catalyzed the, let's call it the hard right, right. of the, the Liberal Party, but it wasn't enough. Um, so uh, the majority uh, went with Malcolm. And so um, he was pushing uh, the pace on this and, in fact, as you know, mm-hmm. offering to negotiate um, the carbon pollution amendments to the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, scheme mm-hmm. and put it through the Senate at a time when the Greens said they wouldn't vote for anything. And why do you think the Greens didn't support uh, this policy at that time? Uh, well, it really genuinely is a question best asked okay. of them. But, uh, I hope they consider it a strategic mistake because it was. Okay. It was a terrible mistake. And maybe, I don't know whether it was political, so they could say, well, yeah, we're, um, you know, we're always going to be greener than Labor on these issues. And so if you want purity, vote green. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I know it's been a number of years of extremely contentious politics in Australia around carbon pricing since then. Um, I value a perspective on any part of that you'd like to highlight or, or, or point well, to is really important in understanding the dynamics yeah. of the debate in Australia. Well, what then happened, of course, is um, uh, there was this question with Kevin as to, well, what do you stand for if you're willing to ditch the great moral issue of our time? It was more the mining tax that precipitated um, pressure for or impetus for a change of leader. Mm-hmm. And then Julia was elected... Um, and uh, what she promised was no carbon tax. Um, and then after the election, of course, uh, neither major political party had uh, sufficient numbers to govern. And so she went in negotiations with the Greens. And it turns out that uh, well, coming out of that was, well, it was actually an emissions trading scheme right. with a fixed price for three years. You see, the carbon pollution reduction scheme was an emissions trading scheme with a fixed price for one year. Right. What Julia negotiated was an emissions trading scheme with a fixed price for three years. Right. The mistake that I think she now concedes she made was to agree that that was a carbon tax. It was no more or less a carbon tax than the carbon pollution reduction scheme mm-hmm. um, with a fixed price for one year. The only difference was two more years of a fixed price. Right. But once Julia said, well, yeah, effectively it's a tax then people said, you've lied, because you said there will be no carbon tax under a government I lead. But she added uh, straight away as part of that sentence, but I don't rule out an emissions trading scheme. Right. Well, she actually introduced an emissions trading right. scheme and then made a concession that it was actually a tax. And was that just a, an error? or well, do you think Julia's that... perspective was she didn't want to get bogged down in the semantics of it. Let's just get the policy implemented. Um, but it turned out the semantics meant a lot. Uh, because people were saying, well, you lied. And uh, the coalition went after her on that great big lie mm-hmm. and started calling her Juliar and all of this sort of stuff and rallies were held and um, about the lie. Um, but as I say, you had two schemes, both emissions trading scheme schemes, one with a fixed price for one year, right. one for a fixed price for three years. They were both emissions trading schemes. But, you know, that dogged the government through that entire period mm-hmm. from 2010 to 2013. 
what do you think the strengths and weaknesses of that set of policies were? So the initial, the CPM. Well, I think um, it's the right way to go. Uh, I, I actually think that the um, scheme with three years fixed price is superior. That's my view. Okay. Because if you have a scheme with a fixed price for one year, people are going to say, okay, you've done the arithmetic on what the cost of living increase will be um, associated with increased electricity prices and so right. on for one year. What's going to be next year when you go to the floating price? Right. answer is, well, we don't know. <laughs> and so that's very easy to oppose. Um, as the coalition would say, well, it's going to go through the roof, it's going to keep going up and up and right, up. Right. At least if you've got it fixed for three years, then people become more familiar with it and that becomes less of a um, point of anxiety and less um, vulnerable to a campaign. So I actually thought that fixing the price for three years and going to a flexible price thereafter was probably the best policy. Now, what happened to the part of the Liberal, of the coalition, who had previously supported an emissions trading scheme you know, under the Turnbull leadership? Uh, they got converted, it seems. Yeah. yeah. Now they, they, is there any vocal minority even? Or? No. no. They've all fallen in the line, including the environment minister, whose um, thesis at university was on um, pollution taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he used to, as many of them, used to debate me uh, on television about the merits of an emissions trading scheme, actually advocating an emissions trading scheme. But then when they saw the opportunity under new leader Tony Abbott, they completely repudiated and said it was a disaster. And do you think that's political opportunism or there's, there's sincere conversion of beliefs? No. Yeah. Well, you know, I suppose to try to explain it, um, an opposition has got a better chance of getting elected if it's united rather than divided. Mm -hmm. And if um, particularly front benches were to break out on this, then it looks like a very divided opposition. So they didn't. And even Malcolm Turnbull, who I'm sure still believes in emissions trading scheme, just kept his head down. Um, so if he's going to keep his head down, uh, and he's the leading advocate of it in the coalition, then no one else is going to stick their head up. But what I find, found, oh, you know, you wonder why people uh, are so jaundiced about politics and politicians. The people who seemingly from the heart and the coalition were advocating and supporting an emissions trading scheme had this epiphany where... They no longer believed in it. Well, come on. I mean, I don't mind if people say um, the party has made a collective decision. I'm bound by that and I'll support that position, mm -hmm. which is really what Malcolm Turnbull said. Um, right. But others who had been on our side suddenly were full of zeal about how disastrous this, was, this tax was going to be. And was that merit at all in the positions that some of the stakeholders were taking as no, well? It was or? just um, because the drought had broken and because um, there were other pressures contributing right. to a concern about cost of living. And so um, we said, and we we're right, that electricity prices go up by um, um, 10%, uh, not more, right. not less, and that's what happened. And the average um, household would receive compensation of $10.10 a week for a total cost of living impact of $9.90 per week, so just a little bit um, overcompensated and people right. down the income scale 
more than fully compensated through a so-called battler's buffer. Right. Um, but the coalition just said, oh, that's just the beginning. It's going to go up and up and up and it's going to kill the economy and, you know, you're not going to be able to buy anything. And so um, they were just campaigning for a change of government, and which is OK, but they were um, being very dishonest in doing what, what do you think the status of carbon pricing is within the Labour Party right now? Um, again, a very good question. Uh, the, the majority view would be this is an article of faith, and I don't mean that as blind faith in right. but, you know, the Labour Party believes in Medicare. Right. The Labour Party believes in superannuation for all working people. Mm-hmm. These are articles of faith of the Labour Party. There would be a sense that, well, if you ditch the support for an emissions trading scheme, mm-hmm. you're not really the Labor Party anymore. You're a pragmatic party, but you can't expect people to support you mm-hmm. if you're going to keep abandoning, you know, um, fundamental, fundamentally um, important policies like that that help define. Uh, the Labor Party. I think that would be the stronger view. Others would say, well, here we go again. We got um, burnt by this before. Why should we get burnt by it again? The public has spoken. Let's move on to other issues. But I think the majority view is you just can't do this. You know, you can't embrace policies that hammer the poor. You can't embrace policies that tear up Medicare. You can't embrace policies um, that withdraw superannuation from working people. And you can't embrace policies that um, now repudiate climate change. And can you think of a moment or a, a period in which you think this particular policy became that article of faith for the majority of Labour Party members? I think when Julia pressed ahead with it, you know, when she got personally vilified uh, over, over a very long period of time, uh, people didn't like the treatment that was meted out to her and it tended to galvanise support behind a policy that was not popular, but which the majority of the Labor Party believed was important and we should stick with it. I I think that really was it myself. And so do you think that even during the period in which uh, the Prime Minister was being vilified and there was a lot of public scepticism and attack on this policy, that most Labour Party members or the party base um, stuck with the policy and continue yeah, to believe probably, in it? probably um, working people in the manufacturing sector um, would have been less committed to it, I suppose. Right. But, yeah, I mean, the, the overall pro- so-called progressive um, you know, part of the Labour Party would, I think, would be horrified, you know, absolutely horrified. It, it would create a very big split. In the Labor Party, I don't think there's ever been any serious discussion. You'd be aware of um, post uh, the 2013 election, um, some people were saying, "Let's just leave it behind us," right. but not many, not many. Um, and even that, as you know, there was a debate about whether the new leader Bill Shorten should let through the right. um, rescinding of the emissions trading scheme, and Bill got a very strong message. Um, that that wouldn't be a good Labor thing to do. And so he's committed to block it, if, if possible. And do you see any pathway towards having a bipartisan consensus on carbon pricing policy in the next decade in Australia? Um, 
It's possible, but I'd put it at about 33 to 1. Okay. You'd need a new leader on the coalition side, sure. Um, you'd need a Malcolm Turnbull. You probably would need a replication of the conditions that I mentioned earlier, which is a drought. No one wants a drought. I'm not right. <laughs> urging a drought, but if people... Um, are increasingly confronted with the sort of severe weather events again that we're now experiencing, mm -hmm. uh, extreme heat, um, scorching heat, you know. Um, yes, been hot before, but people are saying, well, they're saying that something like seven of the ten hottest years, you know, on record have been in the last decade. You know, this is, something's going on out there. Well, if you've got that, and water shortages, a new coalition leader, you might. So I've been speaking to a number of people in Australia, and while a lot of people have mentioned the drought as mm. driving public attitudes here, uh, the role of recent wildfires has been far less prominent in the discussions yeah, that we've had. Yeah, because it's politically um, incorrect to even link them. You know, anyone who does has seen to be politicising the tragedy of bushfires. Um, so it ends up getting left up to... Um, um, other outfits like NASA or uh, or um, the CSIRO or whatever, but as soon as a politician dares to suggest that extreme weather events could be linked to um, global warming, they are condemned as rank opportunists and loops. By, by who? Uh, well, <laughs> um, pretty much anyone in News Limited, okay. um, uh, certainly by the government, um, by the so-called radio shock jocks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of an act of, can characterised as an act of complete political bastardry and insensitivity. Huh. And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I think we should be able to discuss these things right. and have people say, here's the reason why we believe it's not. That's okay. Right. But you can't even talk about it. You're almost, um, you know, being treasonous to suggest that these sorts of Severe weather events could have anything to do with climate change. You saw and, and the people that, in uh, stuck in ice in Antarctica. Right. Now, apparently, that's proof that there is no climate change because they've discovered that there's ice in Antarctica still. Right. But when um, people talk about the bushfires and the extreme heat, they go, "Well, we've always had extreme heat, so extreme heat is not evidence of climate change, but ice in Antarctica is proof that there isn't any." Now, there's no logic in that whatsoever, but that's the debate that occurred over the summer here. Well, this is fascinating for me. So, is this a... What about privately? Do you think privately the political elite in Australia see a link between bushfires and climate change? No. No. No, and, and I think this is one of the most disturbing aspects of this whole debate. You and I could predict uh, to a very high level of confidence mm -hmm. the view of a person on climate change if we know something about where their position on the political spectrum. Um, so I would assert that the overwhelming majority of people on, let's call it the hard right, mm -hmm. do not believe in climate change and are absolutely convinced that right. it is not real and there is a global conspiracy, uh, probably involving the International Monetary Fund, the OECD, the World Bank, NASA, the World Meteorological Organization, and probably various other secret organizations that we're not to know about. So that's that 
side. Um, people on the left, uh, it would be very unusual if anyone on the left said, I've looked at all the scientific evidence and I'm not convinced. Now, the point I'm making is that um, science and scientific evidence isn't playing a very big role, and it should. Mm-hmm. I've described it as the end of age, at the age of reason. Uh, we should be absorbing the scientific evidence and coming to conclusions, but in answering your question, if I know someone's positioned on the right of the political spectrum, a bit over towards right. the hard right, I've got very high confidence that they absolutely are convinced that there is no um, human-induced climate change. And I think that's a real problem because they're in the ascendancy. Interesting. Well, look, thank you so much for uh, answering my questions. My um, pleasure. I'm happy to talk a little bit about my work if you'd and like I'll just to check reverse, the, reverse. I'll check the technical capability of um, being able to go straight on. Okay, technical advice from the control room suggests that we have maybe 10 minutes, a little bit longer. Um, So following on from that exact discussion, uh, why is it, in your view, that in some countries, such as Australia and the United States, there is a very strong correlation between um, your position on the political spectrum and your beliefs about climate change And then in other countries or other parts of the world, such as Europe, where you do have a political spectrum, but there is a much stronger consensus that human-induced climate change is happening and it's a big problem. So I think that's the million-dollar question right now, uh, at least for political scientists and scholars who are thinking about uh, what's driving this extraordinary variation in beliefs about climate change around the world. I think there's a couple of different angles that you can take to try and answer it. Uh, and the answers probably are a combination of each rather than one, one silver bullet reason. Um, so first to say that there's a surprising amount of variation even within Europe uh, mm-hmm. in belief in climate change. From country to country. From country to country. Yeah. And so you'll notice, for instance, that in Eastern Europe, uh, in a lot of countries that have traditionally had, for instance, uh, a large coal sector, yeah, um, heavy, heavy industry. Heavy industry. Yeah. There, there tends to be a slightly depressed belief in, in human-induced okay. climate change. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so for instance, Poland. Yeah. Um, uh, and just to some degree, some prominent Czech intellectuals and have, have taken a climate-skeptic position at various points in time. Um, Norway is another country where uh, maybe one of the few Western European, you know, traditionally Western European countries that has a slightly depressed level of right. belief. Uh, but even in, across these countries, it's important to remember that there's a, a majority belief in human-induced climate change in, in yes. all nations, even in the U.S., which is often pointed as being a, uh, you know, a hotbed of climate mm-hmm. denialism or climate skepticism. There's a plurality of Americans in most states who support uh, regulation of, of carbon pollution. Uh, and belief in climate change is in the, between 60 and 80 percent in most states. So right. there's... Uh, when we talk about this variation, it's variation uh, within how small or large the majority see, of, of the I population see. might be who, who supports. Right. So the, um, I've got a response to that, um, but also, well, the, so is, it, is there a correlation between the energy-intensive economies and 
scepticism about climate change. So if you, as you say, if you come from a coal country, coal, C-O-A-L country, mm-hmm. uh, you, there's going to be less um, concern about climate change. And on that basis, Australia is one of those. You know, Australia is an energy-intensive economy. So is Canada, by the way. Right. Um, so you, you seem to be saying there's some correlation there. So, so I think that at, on, on a very broad level, there is a bit of a correlation. Mm. There's also a bit of a correlation between high levels of climate skepticism and what you might call the Anglosphere. Right. Um, so essentially, English-speaking Commonwealth countries adding the U.S. into that mm. that group. So, so they're more skeptical. More skeptical, on the scale. And, and the debate yeah. the debate seems to be a little bit more intense yeah. and a little bit uh, more high profile in Australia, in Canada, in the U.S. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the UK in many ways uh, is a bit of an exception to that. Mm. Uh, Conservative uh, government, you know, got strong policies on climate change and no no obvious debate or big debate in the UK about whether climate change is real. No, I mean, obviously, the, the Independence Party in the UK has, has taken a fairly you know, sceptical position. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess the flip side, then, is you have this variation, but the degree to which the skepticism about climate change has become politically meaningful is often quite different. Right. Right. So in the UK, there is a fairly you know, significant minority of the public who, in opinion surveys, express some skepticism about human-induced climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, similar levels, in fact, to Canada or Australia, um, but it hasn't been mobilized as such a politically salient issue. Right. In Norway, um, and we can talk a little bit about Norway because it's an interesting mm-hmm. case, uh, but Norway also has, you know, maybe, I think in Gallup surveys, I'd have to look at the figure, but I think the fraction of the population who are fully committed to a belief in human-induced climate change is maybe in the mid-70s, which is not, not terribly different than, say, Canada or even Australia in some international surveys. And, yeah. and their climate change has never really been a politically meaningful uh, source of uh, yeah. political contest, right. even though there's been an enormous amount of carbon pricing and, and work on climate change in yeah. that country. Yeah. Um, so th- there's really then two questions, or two puzzles. One is what's driving this variation in opinion, mm-hmm. and then what's driving the degree to which it's that becomes meaningful, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, what ha- and, and where is it meaningful? We know it is in Australia. Um, it's certainly meaningful in the U.S. Yeah, um, because the, the um, Democratic president just couldn't get um, substantial policies through the Congress, I wouldn't think. That's right, and there's there's an enormous amount of opinion polarization there as well. Mm. Um, though I, I would say, um, it, from my view, there are no that in Australia, climate change has become a high profile political issue in a way that it probably hasn't in any other country in the world. Um, and while many of the, you know, as I'm learning more about Australia, I think that there's lots of similarities between the experience here and in in other countries, but the degree to which climate change has become the high-profile issue that, that governments and leaders have fallen on or, yeah. or stood on uh, is quite unique in that I don't think, even in the U.S. where we have, or, you know, there's equivalent yeah. politicization of the issue, yeah. it's never become the issue of, uh, of political contests and, right. yeah, in terms it, of elections at um, yeah. different levels of government and so on. What, mm-hmm. what about at the state level? Do they... Do you have some going on a platform of um, addressing climate change and others saying, no, it's, it's a complete myth? And, or does C- everyone... Certainly. So there's, there's been a progressive polarization of opinion in the U.S. Yeah. on climate change over the last 
10 years. Um, there's a number of perspectives on what was driving that shift. Um, some people point to the period around the Kyoto process where yeah. um, the pro-Kyoto ratification position became very tightly identified with President Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, other people actually point to, uh, in this ironic twist, that the the deep public connections that were made between uh, Al Gore and the climate uh, yeah, issue yeah, yeah, yeah. basically bundled the climate issue as a democratic uh, issue, yeah, right? True, and so, true in the, in right, the and, and particularly yeah. because of this extraordinary election in 2000 where yeah. you know, 537 votes in Florida, yeah, yeah. Republicans knew that they didn't agree with Gore and that they didn't support Gore. And then when Gore became the the voice of climate science mm. in the U.S., then they came to believe and they couldn't be the believe in that science, right? So they polarized away, right? with him, yeah, yeah. with, with, with um, the Democrats, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, opinion research uh, in, say, American political science scholarship that points to this type of dynamic, not just in the climate space, but more broadly, where often there's a bipartisan consensus about an issue by chance uh, or perhaps for a, a totally unrelated strategic reason. One party comes to be viewed as being... Uh, associated with a particular yeah. position in the public's mind, mm. and it creates a sorting effect. Yes, right? and it creates, say, yes. It and actually that, creates, that's happened in Australia. It creates two sorting effects. One, the public starts sorting, yeah. and, and many public opinions are determined by elite cues, right? So many people in responding to opinion surveys about climate change uh, you know, often are very influenced by what the politicians who they identify with yeah. have, have said recently. Yeah. Um, but you also have a, a sorting of individuals, uh, for instance, who are trying to run for political parties or get mm. elected within primaries that follows. Yeah, yeah. And so for a period of time, there are still members of, say, the Republican Party who became members of the Republican Party before belief in climate change was a, an identity issue. Yeah. And those members continue to sit in Congress or in the Senate and continue to act in a bipartisan manner on this issue. True. But yeah. as as they're replaced yeah. and the turnover happens, the people who replace them, you know, have I guess come into the party and become representatives of the party. Yeah. After the party already had a this issue was bundled and therefore have already sided on the right. issue. Yeah. Um, and so you know, there's a lot of discussion in a number of social domains about the uh, fading away of a certain type of moderate in the Republican yeah, Party yeah. right now. Um, and, and so you see this on, party, say, yeah. for instance, abortion rights or socially, yeah, yeah. social yeah, issues. Moderate Republican is an endangered species. Right. And they're not being replaced by new moderate Republicans no. because new party representatives yeah. come into the party with yeah. the full bundle. And that bundle, unfortunately, yeah. now includes a lack well, of belief in climate I'm concerned that, um, and I know that you're not through your research, sure. but you seem to have come to a tentative conclusion that Australia is more divided on this issue than any other country that you're studying. Um, any final observations uh, on or thoughts, preliminary thoughts on what might be driving that? Um, well, I think that Australia it, Australia may be more divided uh, on climate change in some ways, but it also had a more active politicized debate on climate change yeah. than many other countries. And so I think in some ways the two go together. So that, that you, Australia it, had a full, yeah, high-profile agenda-setting yeah. debate, yeah, yeah. and that meant that many people had the opportunity to decide what their position yeah. was in or, a political or fashion. Or if you didn't have a strong view, 
you you better get one because right. <laughs> because if your coalition of coalition supported you're meant to be against mm-hmm. um, climate change action. If you're a Labor or Green supporter, you're meant to be for it, and so in that sense, sorts out or, or, or creates yeah. um, um, divisions, I suppose. Right. Though which, it's not it's not clear that those divisions are as present in the Australian public. And here, I'm not speaking my own research; I'm mm. just speaking of research that I've read by Australian yeah. academics. Um, but, but I think that it's certainly true that the climate change has risen on the agenda in Australia and become a, a source of electoral contest yeah, yeah. There's no in a way that it that. hasn't anywhere else. But there's yeah. very recent research out, um, an opinion poll just last week, which actually says a very, very, very strong majority is very concerned about climate change, mm-hmm. but they don't want the so-called carbon tax. Yeah. So, you know, the, the sense seems to be the government ought to do something about it, but don't make it anything that affects our cost of living. Which is pretty hard to do. <laughs> anyway, this has got a long way to go, Matto, sure. and um, I want to thank you for joining us on MO Forum and giving us this broader perspective of where we sit in the world and how the Australian debate um, shares some similarities mm-hmm. with those in other countries but has some pretty unique features that have made it such a divisive issue in this country. Yeah, well, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay, thanks, right, Matt. Take care.